Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 140, November 20th to November 26th, 1863. Last week, we had a couple of events, including the famous Gettysburg Address. We had to cover some of the campaigning around Knoxville and kick off Longstreet's attempt on that city and independent command. We will conclude with that next week. This week, we actually have two major events. We will conclude the episode talking about Meade and his Mine Run campaign. If you have never heard of the Mine Run campaign, that would make sense because it was described as the greatest battle never to be fought. First though, let's head to Tennessee and talk about the battles around Chattanooga. Before we do that, though, let's talk a little bit about the Patreon content we had. We had a picture slideshow at the beginning of the month that should be posted. That is going over the Battle of Perryville and some pictures from that battlefield. Pretty nice, uh, very natural kind of battlefield. There's not a whole lot of monuments. It really gets you into the mindset of the individuals who fought there. Very picturesque as well. So there is a slideshow that goes over not only that, a little bit of bonus content as well with the Battle of Richmond as well, the battlefield in a modern lens. And we have coming up here very shortly. It's hard to believe we're already here to December, uh, but we'll be doing a movie review next, and that will be uh, taking a break from a little bit of a more serious note, and uh, we will be doing Abraham Lincoln uh, Vampire Hunter. So that is, of course, a cinematic masterpiece, and we'll be talking about it and uh, maybe we'll uncover some historical gems in there. Uh, who knows? So if that sounds like something that would interest you, there is a link to the Patreon feed. And of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. When we last left off at Chattanooga, the Cracker Line had been open and Grant was gathering reinforcements to the city. Now, I'll just throw in that Rosecrans apparently had come up with that idea, at least an idea similar to the Cracker Line, but most histories do give Grant the credit. There are some historians I have seen that have cited the fact that the army really wasn't starving and Grant showing up had little to do with breaking the siege, as maybe it would have happened anyway. Bragg decided to remain where he was, which is an interesting decision. Perhaps not wanting to abandon Longstreet, Lookout Mountain, and Missionary Ridge were of no strategic value, although formidable positions. Since we talked about the opening of the Knoxville campaign, we might make the safe conclusion that Bragg was maybe staying put because if Longstreet did best Burnside, it might force Grant to pull back. But to illustrate just the precarious position the Confederate Army found itself, Grant had been all set for an assault on November 7th, but Thomas and his troops were still weakened by their lack of supply, as were crucial horses to pull artillery. By November 23rd, the situation was still at a standstill, but with Sherman arriving, Grant hatched a plan. Sherman will land on the right flank of the rebels on Missionary Ridge, attack, and then roll up the position, but there was a sense of urgency. It had been reported that Bragg might be preparing to pull back, meaning Grant's prey would escape. That simply would not do for the aggressive commander, wanting to give Bragg a good kick before he departed. 
Very interesting to see how the shoe is now on the, on the other foot. It seemed after Chickamauga that Bragg had all the momentum, and maybe he could have capitalized on that against Rosecrans and a weakened army. Uh, maybe not, as we saw sort of after that battle. But now we have Bragg being the hunted rather than the hunter. Now, the Confederate line had advanced elements on the open plain between the city and Missionary Ridge. This was anchored in the center by a rise known as Orchard Knob. Grant would order Thomas to use his newly combined 4th Corps under Granger and the 14th under Palmer to take these positions. Although it was to be a general movement, it was also deemed more of a reconnaissance, Grant wishing to judge the resolve of Bragg to hold this line. Once completed, the Union forces would return to their own lines. Moving out on the 23rd, the rebels, as we have mentioned before, were not particularly good at holding a siege. They would see the formations, but think it more just maneuvers than anything else. It was not until Thomas Wood and Philip Sheridan dashed their divisions toward to take Norchard Knob did they realize their error. Lightly defended, the Confederates would move back to a new line at the base of Missionary Ridge. Now, 600 or so defenders actually give a burst fight, despite the overall narrative that the Confederates retreated without firing a shot. These regiments were from Arthur Manigault's brigade, and one regiment was under the impression the defense needed to be held at all hazards. Both sides probably suffered some 200 or so casualties, with a lot of the Confederate losses being in troops captured. But it is still telling that the Reserve Corps under Howard had not been needed, with Thomas's division still wishing to seek redemption from Chickamauga. Even though the plan was a reconnaissance in force, Grant decided to stay where he was, as he now had Thomas a lot closer to his objective. Now was the time to make sure that Sherman came in undetected relatively. This made sense if Grant was still concerned about a southern withdrawal. There are a lot of sources that point out Grant continues to show favoritism toward his primary subordinate, giving him the crucial assignment and essentially trying to make sure the rest of the troops gathered had secondary assignments. But just as his orchard knob, the next assault would not go according to plan. Sherman's divisions would move across pontoons at the mouth of West Chickamauga Creek, making a successful bridgehead. This had been quite a journey in order to get to the battlefield, as they faced bad roads, swollen rivers, and of course Walden's Ridge. Baldy Smith had focused on making sure the roads north of Chattanooga were in at least better shape, which was hard given the winter months. Bragg, meanwhile, had decided to remove two divisions of his army to go help Longstreet. Sherman, he surmised, might be going to help Burnside, so he sent the men in the form of Buckner and gave the orders for Claiborne to pull out as well. Buckner had been demoted from Corps Command, and Claiborne, while a capable officer, was no fan of Bragg, so removing these divisions might make sense to continue the purge of anti-Bragg supporters. This was particularly curious considering it was foolhardy for Grant to make a frontal assault, but the flanks would be weakened as Bragg moved the men out. Confederates were right about the sorry state of defenses in the Lookout Mountain sector. With Sherman successfully landed, Hooker was given the orders to use Geary and Cruft to take the weakened defenders in this area. Before, he had been operating still in the Lookout Valley, protecting the Browns Ferry Crossing. 
Hooker was to threaten, but with seeing only 5,000 men from four brigades from two different divisions in front of him, an attack was deemed to be prudent. In fact, the operation would hinge on the fact that he retained a division under Peter Osterhaus, delayed in joining Sherman for his move to try to get into position to attack the northern end of Missionary Ridge. If Osterhaus had not been there, the attack would have been scrubbed, but with the added weight, Hooker was given the green light. Carter Stevenson, who, if you recall, did a lot of marching but not a lot of fighting, was commanding in this sector. Bragg and the Confederates had reverted back to a two-core system, one under Breckenridge and the other under Hardee, having been recalled to that position. Unfortunately for the Confederates, Stevenson and John K. Jackson, commanding in the area, had their wires crossed in terms of where to exercise their control. With Hardy gone, the tip of Lookout Mountain would be sort of neglected. Hooker would not only have the men from Osterhaus and Gary, but Whitaker's brigade of Cruft's command. This made his patchwork force a real diverse bunch. Chattanooga is characterized as such, with some units being shared between the various armies present. As Hooker demonstrated with his men across Lookout Creek, Geary would swing across and attack, catching Walthall's brigade by relative surprise. Fogg would aid the blue-crad infantry in their efforts, as would the fact that the rebel defenses were facing Lookout Creek and not in any position to stop Geary's flanking movement. This fighting would be punctuated by inadequate rebel defenses that were usually not facing the right direction to fend off the attacking northerners. Much of the two regiments from the Mississippi Brigade would be captured as the flanking movement was launched. Walthall would try in vain to rally his troops, making a stand, but ultimately breaking back toward the Craven Farm. Union troops would capture two Confederate guns in their attack, but the honors would be claimed by multiple regiments. You see, Walthall would be fighting the battle alone for some time until John Moore's Alabama troops arrived on the field. George Cobham's Pennsylvania regiments and David Ireland, who had performed well in Culp's Hill at Gettysburg, now taking control of the brigade, vacated by the wounded Green, would bear the brunt of the fighting so far. With Moore's arrival and the fatigue of the Union troops, it was possible there could be a standstill. But Hooker still had the infantry from Walter Whitaker's brigade from Cruft's division. This command would eventually flank Moore and force the enemy to retreat. Edmund W. Pettus and additional Alabama regiments would arrive, and for a time the rebels would stabilize a new defensive line. All through the battle, fog had descended, some of which clung to the mountain, giving the name the Battle Above the Clouds. This was also not so good for visibility as to what was happening, though, Grant getting constant updates from Hooker. Even with the new stand being made by the Alabama troops, Bragg would realize that further resistance was not wise, as would Hooker realize he would not capitalize on his success with tired troops. It would have been possible to maybe cut off the one road off Lookout Mountain and trap the two remaining brigades, but the Federals would rest on their laurels. The 24th would see Lookout Mountain fall to the Union, a flag on the summit to prove the victory. 671 Union casualties had been suffered, compared to over 1,000 Confederate, the majority of which were again captured. That only left one remaining obstacle. 
Sherman had made it across the river, but in the meantime had been rather sluggish in his advance. His objective would be the Confederate-held Tunnel Hill, which had been watched over by Claiborne and his men. When the threat that Sherman posed was realized, Claiborne would stay put instead of leaving for Longstreet. With both sides skirmishing, Sherman would settle down for the evening, satisfied with having taken a piece of high ground known as Billy Goat Hill. Grant would eventually settle on trying to demonstrate with Thomas in the center and Hooker on the right, thus freeing up Sherman for his grand assault the next day. Bragg, on the other hand, would be holding a council of war with Hardy and Breckinridge. Hardy was under the impression that the Confederates should withdraw, which at this point would have been prudent. But Breckinridge told Bragg he was confident of victory, citing the strong position held on Missionary Ridge. Now, I have seen a fringe kind of conspiracy theory where Breckinridge tells Bragg to remain where he was intentionally so that he can be destroyed. Well, it certainly would have been the coup de grace on the rivalry between the two men, and maybe a poetic end, it was not probably true. But there is an interesting question here as to why exactly Bragg listens to Breckenridge. Maybe he realizes that a withdrawal back into Georgia is not going to bode well for his army or his career. Davis has been very patient with him so far. They had seen that they were actually very close to taking Chattanooga, and that would have been a big win to kind of seal off the gateway into the Confederate interior, right? It would have been a morale boost to the Tennessee troops. A withdrawal back into Georgia is going to lessen that morale. They already don't have great morale as it is. The Georgia troops probably would also suffer in terms of morale because they had just pushed the Union Army out of that state and now going back into it and potentially closer to Atlanta, that's not going to go well. So just for keeping his army intact, that's going to be an issue. Now, there's also Longstreet, and as we're going to see, Longstreet doesn't necessarily need Bragg to stick around, but again, we had talked about this last episode, why Longstreet doesn't stick around in the first place closer to the army. That's another interesting theory here, right? Why exactly things are rolling out the way they are? Why does Bragg do pretty much nothing? If you've ever been to Missionary Ridge, it still is a very... Uh, interesting terrain feature, very formidable if you were having to run up it, right, to try to assault it. So maybe that is part of the thinking. Like, there's going to be no way a frontal assault is going to actually succeed here. So let's just go ahead and stay put. Maybe there's going to be another Fredericksburg, right? There was a Fredericksburg in the east. And, you know, even though this isn't really the Western theater, it's what we call maybe the Western theater, right? The sub theater of the war. Then maybe there's going to be room for a Fredericksburg out here. We know Sherman's already good for it because he had been at Chickasaw Bayou and he had seen some pretty ill-advised assaults there. So maybe that's going to happen again. So uh, Bragg is going to stay put, stay where he is, try to hold seemingly a good defensive position. Right or wrong, Bragg will listen to the Kentuckian and remain with his troops in their defenses. If they could not hold there, they would not hold anywhere, the former vice president has expounded. Maybe those words were ringing in the ears of Bragg as the assaults began the next day, November 25th. Sherman would kick off with an attack in the morning, Grant not satisfied with his progress from the day before. But Sherman was still going to be rather cautious, only throwing in one brigade. While he had his men take a piece of high ground, this turned out to be the only part of Tunnel Hill. Claiborne and his troops were actually on the higher piece. 
Kind of like those passages from the two towers, they are like the walking up the mountain and they see another mountain. But Sherman does not have the ring of power, and Frodo and Samwise did not have a brigade of battle-hardened Union infantry. A brigade at a time was committed against Claiborne, who turns in one of his better performances, moving his regiments around and counterattacking at the right time to undo federal progress. Ewing's division of Sherman's command would see heavy casualties in the brigades of John Corse and John Loomis, Corse being wounded in the fighting. Loomis would be actually attacking the tunnel of Tunnel Hill, where some Confederates had holed up at a farmhouse and were generally causing a nuisance, as were artillery pieces. John Smith's division of the 17th Corps would also throw brigades into the attack, but likewise be held at bay. With two regiments from the 11th Corps and the brigades of Raum and Matthews, it might have been curtains for Claiborne, but the Confederates would throw off the attacking Federals by using the terrain and counterattacking into the flank taking many standards of colors in the process. As a result, Sherman will be stymied yet again in what many would say would be his worst performance of the war. In fact, this is often used to cite how overrated he is as a battlefield commander in general, but I digress. The frontal attacks failing, it is curious as to why no flank movement with more men available was tried, but I've also seen where it is unfair to be too critical with Sherman as he didn't have any accurate maps and he was not familiar with the terrain. While he attempted to take Tunnel Hill in waves, the 11th Corps would try to support and attack further on Missionary Ridge. These assaults, too, would have little effect. Walker's division, commanded by States Rights Gist, would be holding them off. For Grant, Hooker was supposed to be getting into a position where he could attack from the right flank, but he had to have pioneers rebuild a bridge, so that was not materializing as fast as he had thought it would. This, of course, would leave Thomas in the center. Now, Thomas would object, and rightly so, because on paper, this would not seem to be a good attack. Confederates held rifle pits at the base of the ridge, and then defenses further up. Grant, though, would think that maybe the Confederates seeing the men form up in the center would believe the attack was in fact coming from there, just as it had been at Orchard Knob. Likewise, this battlefield disagreement did not go well to massage the relationship between Thomas and Grant. Regardless, divisions from Granger and Palmer, Johnson, Sheridan, Wood, and Baird would form up for an attack. Now there would be a pause in the forward movement, Granger excitedly sighting a cannon rather than acting like a corps commander. Grant would become frustrated with his subordinate and order the attack, the divisions lumbering forward in the late afternoon. They would take the advanced rifle pits easily, and then miraculously, they would then pour up Missionary Ridge, driving all the Confederates before them. Now, the plan was only to go ahead and advance to the rifle pits, so Grant would ask Irritated who had given that command, to which Granger would reply, when those fellows get started, all hell can't stop them. In 15 to 20 minutes, the center and left of the Confederate line would collapse. Hooker had finally been coming up on the left flank, so there was this added pressure on Bragg, and any defense Breckenridge would think of in this sector, likewise, would collapse. But we need to answer some questions. First, who gave the order and why did the infantry move up Missionary Ridge? While we might not know exactly who gave the order, staying in the rifle pits as was intended was not going to do, with the Confederates being able to then shoot down on them, so it was rather out of necessity. 
In fact, this did happen in certain areas. Also in certain areas, the Confederates had withdrawn to the upper reaches of the ridge and poured down an effective fire. Wagner's brigade of Sheridan's division and Harker's of the same as well were repulsed in their initial attempts. Harker's troops would eventually be rewarded by gaining the crest of the ridge and actually capturing a battery that was stationed outside of Bragg's headquarters. The rebels were in flight, so chasing them up the ridge was oddly safer, meaning subordinate units could not form a solid line to repel the attackers. Cannon could not depress to hit the enemy, and even if they could, avoiding friendly fire was on the mind of most rebels. Additionally, the Union troops were ready to be absolved of Chickamauga. In every battle so far in the retaking of Chattanooga, the 4th and 14th Corps had played a prominent role. For an army who had not tasted defeat before September, they would wish to quickly right the wrong and show their counterparts in the Army of Tennessee and the Army of the Potomac they were quality fighters. Why did the Confederates fold so easily? Well, I think poor planning is part of it, but also shows just how far their morale had sunk. The defenses were really not well thought out, Breckenridge perhaps thinking that the sheer strength of the ridge meant there would be no need. Jumbles of men on both sides would cause confusion, but whereas the rebels would devolve into panic, the Union troops simply followed whatever officer was closest and continued. Hazen's brigade would soon make the crest, followed by others gaining a foothold on the ridge. Bragg tried in vain to rally his men, but they would not give him the time of day. Some jeered him as he held a flag trying to get them to stand. Claiborne and Cheatham on the northern end of the line would actually stand for a time, repulsing Baird's division. Cheatham would actually be forced to use the spent brigades of Walthall and Moore to do so, where they performed well despite having been victimized the day prior. Hooker's command was able to take Rossville Gap further to the south, driving away the remaining men under Breckenridge there, using artillery to good effect. As the darkness came, the Confederates would pull back toward Chickamauga Station. Chattanooga would remain in Union hands. Because the assault had jumped off actually later in the day, the totality of the Union victory was lessened. There were still some 4,000 to 6,000 rebel prisoners taken, as well as 42 pieces of artillery, crippling blows to the war effort in the theater. Remarkably, though, only 361 Confederates were killed, with 2,100 wounded. Union losses were 752 killed and over 4,000 wounded, making it really a lopsided but hard-won victory. We are going to give a full recap on these battles next week, so stay tuned for that. I think we can now shift things to the east and put things in a very nice perspective for Abraham Lincoln. You see, while Grant is still winning, Meade is also trying to carve out a little glory of his own. Since Bristow Station and Rappahannock Station, the armies had been quiet. Rain had made roadways into mud, and regular soldiers were seeking to make winter encampments. Not having caused a whole lot of casualties and likewise not falling into any major traps set by Lee had made the commander of the Army of the Potomac very popular with the rank and file. But Meade would wish to satisfy Washington, where he was not so popular. We mentioned during our previous episodes that Meade is missing a major battlefield victory. 
And when we say that, we mean not Gettysburg because he needs one in addition to Gettysburg, which is sort of this crisis situation. And then he's not able to follow that up. So he needs another one in order to really solidify his position. By Thanksgiving, he will decide to set the army in motion, rumbling told multiple crossing points along the Rapidan. We will have the same cast of characters we have become used to since after Gettysburg. Initially, the advance is going to be slow. As we have highlighted a couple times, we have the complexities of winter campaigning. But despite the setbacks, had there been better roads, it was possible to have retained the element of surprise on Lee. Lee, though, was made aware of the federal movements, mostly because amongst the federal corps, that of Blinky French, the third corps, would see the timetable behind by a whole day. As a result, they would be late to the rendezvous point, Robinson's Tavern, near Locust Grove, and Warren's second corps would be surprised by Jubal Early, commanding the Confederate second corps. Ewell, as we have documented, is not going to be in the best of health, especially dealing with complications from his leg amputation at 2nd Manassas. Early was probably at this point the most capable and aggressive officer Lee has, although he was probably still a poor substitute for Jackson. Or that matter, Longstreet, right? So remember, Lee is without both of those individuals. Jackson, of course, is dead, and Longstreet is in Knoxville. On the 27th, the Union troops will be holding high ground, skirmishing with the rebels. Harry Hayes would meet troops under the 2nd Corps along the Orange Turnpike, as we are not too far removed from the old Chancellorsville battlefield. Heath's division would try to flank the Union line at New Hope Church, a little further south on the Orange Plank Road, this way veering off from the parallel running Plank Road. Here there would also be sharp skirmishing, Heath holding higher ground that Tardy George and his 5th Corps could have occupied. Seeing that nothing was going to be gained, Early decided to pull back to Mine Run, a better defensive position. Rufus Dawes, actually in his memoir, writes about a raid from Rosser's Confederate cavalry, the rebel horsemen wearing captured blue overcoats, causing a little confusion. If you want to hear a review of this memoir, check out the Patreon, and there might be a little surprise for you there. In the meantime, Meade had given French orders not to engage the Confederates. Now remember, he had already suffered seemingly insubordinate behavior from Sickles at Gettysburg. Meade had actually met with his political general before the campaign and had denied him re-entry into his officer corps. French and the Third Corps would be delayed in their advance, and in so doing would also cover up the Sixth Corps behind them. Remember, we are in the area around the wilderness, so maneuvering is going to be tough. But the orders were to link up with Warren and his Second Corps, who, as we know, on the 27th were engaging Harry T. Hayes, commanding Early's division, Early having taken Corps command. The delay would allow for Lee and Early to reposition their line originally around Raccoon Ford Road. Allegheny Johnson would meet the enemy at a place called Payne's Farm, trying an aggressive double envelopment move that was not effectual. Prince and Carr would deploy with Bernie in reserve. The Confederate forces would feed troops in as they arrived, eventually with Rhodes providing additional support. Despite being greatly outnumbered, the Confederates would attack. 
but at all points the assaults would be disorganized. At one point in the fighting, two regiments from Brewster's Excelsior Brigade would find themselves flanking Marilyn Stewart, and could, if supported, have still turned the rebel line, which is what Meade was going to have in mind. As it was, this opportunity would be blown, while the rebels would continually be throwing attacks at the Third Corps. Artillery and a lack of coordination on the part of the Southerners would save French. Rum Jones, in the later stages of the fighting, would be hit in the head by a spent ball, knocking him out of the action for a time. It was said, though, that while Rum Jones was known as a drinker, Allegheny Johnson was the real culprit for the Confederates, not capitalizing on uncovering the enemy attempt at surprise, or even simply saving lives by not attacking at all. 550 Southerners were lost, as opposed to 942 Northerners, but the attack did have an important result, being that the Union troops had been stopped and the flanking move was unsuccessful. Lee would move everyone back to the mine run line and construct impressive earthworks there. Warren of the Second Corps had wished to maybe flank the rebels on the right. Now at this point, Meade is going to be desperate for some kind of decisive action. With Grant winning a victory and his previous campaigns coming to naught, it was crunch time for the commander of the Army of the Potomac. With some skirmishing, the attack would be planned to hit both flanks of the rebel line. Warren, though, and Sedgwick to the north would both call off their attacks, citing the strong defensive line of the Southerners. In reality, Lee was stretched very thin. While not a foregone conclusion that the attack would be successful, Meade would opt to withdraw yet again. At this point, you might be shaking your head about Meade here in this situation. But it is at least commendable that he writes that he would not wish to sacrifice a large amount of life just to keep up with Grant's victories. Lee would also miss an opportunity. As a whole, even though he was outnumbered in the campaign, he would have his best opportunity to continue in an offensive campaign against Meade. This would not happen in 1864. Allowing for the Army of the Potomac to escape relatively unharassed would be an oversight. Both sides, though, would go into winter quarters, preparing for the heavy campaigns yet to come. So we'll call it quits right there. Today we talked about Chattanooga, including Orchard Knob, Lookout Mountain, and Missionary Ridge. We also had the Mine Run Campaign, which you will be excused of not having heard of before. This will wrap up campaigning in the East for the time being. Next week, we will really tie a bow on the campaigning that's been going on in Tennessee. We need to close the book on the pursuit of the Confederate Army of Tennessee, as well as the Knoxville campaign, and of course, we have the long-awaited goodbye of Braxton Bragg. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>